0: You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivilevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You're blowing the dust off the old books. You're trying to find an ancient treasure. Yes, the antiquarian who has smicha has arrived. But first, you've heard me on this platform touting NRS, a great company whose many dedicated employees I get to see in action. NRS Pay has recently launched its new cost-cutting program called Cash Discount. The way it works is any vendor using NRS Pay Cash Discount has their sale register tabulating automatically a dual pricing, which offers customers a choice of a cash payment, which could result in an up to 4% discount over swiping their card. If your business meets the $18,000 a month threshold, there's absolutely no monthly fee to incur. NRS Pay Cash Discount makes it less expensive to accept credit cards, so you'll save money while helping your customers save at the same time. NRS is offering a time-limited deal right now on this state-of-the-art system. You'll get a free card reader with zero hidden fees, no long-term contract, and no early termination fee, which means you can switch your processing plan without penalty. NRSPay is a proud part of the IDT corporation that I've been associated with for over 10 years and has integrity built into its corporate DNA. I know its founder, its officers, and salespeople, and they truly stand by their product and will help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Check NRSPay.com for more information or call 833-289-2767 and now the antiquarian clear the dust off the antiquarian has smicha yes yitzchok kolkowski and i we are clearing the dust off yitzchok is actually pushing a lot of dust because he's actually in his dusty automobile driving down the highway doing 64 (laughs) at least getting all that dust out of the way of his wheels and engine as it motivates that we are here to dust off the past and perhaps bring to light some things that are inspiring and interesting, things you might not know about. Yitzchak felt, and I agree with him, that it's important to take note of the national commemoration of Veterans Day, which is November 11th. Uh, Originally, it was called Armistice Day, and it was connected to... The cessation of hostilities in World War One, I, I believe. And it has morphed into a day to remember the unity, the inspiration that was given to us by our veterans. And although, there, you know, a lot of these days, Yitzchok, in, in, in the national consciousness have sort of morphed into Memorial Day, where we remember the dead who have fallen in various wars. Uh, veterans Day was to really recognize significance of what the veterans what these warriors have done for this country and for freedom throughout the world i think that there is a significance for us as jews in this very difficult period in our modern history to remember really what happened here in the united states during i'm not going to talk about world war one because i don't believe it really unified in the same way World War II did. Now, again, uh, there might be historians who will disagree with that uh, presumption, but I think everything that I've read and seen indicated that there was something about World War II that brought the United States together in ways of self-sacrifice for a cause that was clear. I think it's, look, that in World War I, the idea of fighting the Germans you know the the Kaiser et cetera you know it was under it was sort of like there was a lot of geopolitical stuff going on that I think was beyond the ken of many. We knew that we had to support France, we knew that we had to support England. I don't know if there was protest at home, but I think World War two despite the voices that were sounded against it originally as the Jews Wars, Roosevelt's war, once the attack on Pearl Harbor occurred. I think there was a, an understanding that there was a threat, not only to Europe, its Jews and its other citizens, but the Japanese German axis could lead to the takeover of the planet under the, the crushing dictatorship of either a Germany or a Japan. Anybody that doubts this, you know, you can watch the Amazon uh, series, The Man in the High Castle, which of course was based on a, short story, a uh, novella by Philip K. Dick, which speculated what would the world have been like had it been taken over by the Germans and the Japanese. So I think there was a sense that we were fighting for our country, fighting for our freedom, fighting for great, great causes. And there was a unity that was evident. And I think we're seeing almost the exact same spirit in eric's role today and spreading through world jewelry that supports Eretz Yisrael, the type of, we need to all give in, we need to all dig deep, we need to be part of this, uh, we need to scrimp and save, we have to go without certain things. And the type of love and concern for the GIs that was evidenced in World War II, you see the exact same, and perhaps even more, in Eretz Yisrael, where I think it's it's every chayal is not just a son, as Arthur Miller wrote in, in his play, but actually a brother, a loved one, part of yourself. They're not just all my sons, they are all of us. And therefore, Yitzhak and I thought that not only to celebrate Veterans Day and to recognize the spirit of community and service that's going on there at Cesaro, we thought we would look back at a couple of things that were part of American Jewish and perhaps not so Jewish World War II artifacts from that period. talk, there was another aspect here that sparked your interest, and that had to do with something that was given to you, sort of a uh, patrimonious gift that was given to you, correct?
1: Yeah, so several gifts that I received from my grandfathers. My father's father served in World War II. He actually uh, served in both theaters, both in the Atlantic and the Pacific, in World War II. And then my mother's father, my Zeta, he served in Korea. And these curious artifacts that, you know, that I have in my possession, I remember from what I call my grandpa, who wasn't Jewish, my father's father, you know, we had uh, like a little booklet of when he spent some time in Australia that was given out to the G.I.s. To uh, explain, you know, proper conduct when visiting Australia, it had the the lyrics to "Waltzing Matilda," which was actually one of my Zeta's favorite songs. Said how the Australians love the Americans, and so a strong feeling of unity and and brotherhood, love among the English-speaking world, particularly between Australia and America. You know, the other type of Memorabilia and so forth that I recall very fondly from my data uh, was the various things that the Jewish Welfare Board produced for the soldiers. So there were Sidurim and a Tanakh, uh, also whether I'm not sure if it was from my data or I found it in the Sheamus box, I don't quite re- recall where I got this from. I'm, I found uh, like a, a Zverus book, a songster, as they would call it, song book, Jewish song, you know, songs for Jewish soldiers. And we found copies of this volume in PDF form on the internet. And uh, looking through that uh, in preparation for this particular uh, uh, recording, quite amusing, but also somewhat. Rather inspiring to look at. Not only that, but the Sederim and the Makhzorim.
0: We'll talk about some of the uh, the sitters specifically in a minute. But again, these are things which you can find online uh, in the Internet Archive and other places. And of course, some of them, the actual items themselves are now collectors' items that are sold in various places that you you can obtain them. But this was sort of it was like a hymnal, which of course, for many Christians, is almost a standard book that that's used as part of the sunday devotional which is you know there's the bible passages that the priest will read from and but there's also the though, which are various songs that the uh that the congregation would sing from and these were all songs with inspiration some of them had musical notes and this book that you shared with me has musical notes in it those people are interested i, I noted that a lot of the the vintage of these songs was quite old in some cases. And even though it was being used in World War II for the Navy and the Army and, and the various forces, the songs seemed to be quite, quite old. And, uh, you know, some of them, I guess, were some of the standards that any Jewish home would know about. Some of them were a little bit strange, right? There was one that I mentioned to you, and you found it also quite interesting. It's called Descend, O Sabbath Princess.
1: I was curious, did anybody ever actually sing those English songs, you know, like that Quite a curiosity, I tried to find any recordings I could find of the song to no avail, but I found more than one place where the, the sheet music is available online. And
0: really- so if any of you antiquarians want to help create a new recording of that incredible, sort of kabbalistically influenced song, as he talks about the light of the Shina and other things, that is called Descend, O Sabbath Princess. Uh, we'd love for you to be able to find it and send us a recording of it. We'll play it here on, on the antiquarian. You'll be having, you'll be able to, uh, get your five minutes of fame. Let's talk about the prayer book. I thought this was quite interesting. It's and again, it's not based on any super scholarly research. It's just what's on the internet archive. Let's give a little background. The Jewish welfare board was formed, uh, four days after America's entry into World War I with the understanding that the very sizable population of Jews that had come to America up until that time, this was before the limits on Jewish population post-World War I. So there were many Jews who were, some of them immigrants, some of them just born to the turn of the century or around that time, that were ready to join the armed forces to really show their blood was imbued with the same spirit of America. And there were many Jews that that enlisted that were part of a draft that came to be part of the fighting forces. So the Jewish Welfare Board was formed in order to sort of give some protection for these Jews, to let them know that the same way there would be chaplains to the Christian members of the army, but there would be aspects that Jewish members of the fighting forces in all, not just overseas, even in training and in various uh, forts and camps throughout the United States. So the Jewish Welfare Board, like many great ideas, really was a product of war and recognizing that we needed something to unify Jews all over the United States.
1: Still to this day, the Jewish Welfare Board is an organization that endorses chaplains and, and you know is involved in many other things. I know if you if you anyone who wants a job as a chaplain in the VA, as as a rabbi or cantor, any other Jewish clergy needs approval from the Jewish Welfare Board uh, in addition to other requirements that the VA has. uh,
0: and, And I think we should also give credit to them because through their organizing, many other sort of ragtag Jewish sort of institutions sort of became one. And we have through the Jewish Welfare Board post the war, we have the growth of the YMHAs which you know, which which were very important Jewish community centers, which are also the same sort of community service. Uh, this was all part of really the spearhead of the Jewish Welfare Board, because it was. It was yeah, clear.
1: I think now the Jewish Welfare Board is under the umbrella of the JCC of
0: America. I think there was a sense that, and it might have been rabbinic and lay leaders that realized that we need something to bond Jews uh, throughout. And one of the things that that first. A sidder that they produced uh, and it was produced in conjunction with Reform, Conservative and Orthodox uh Rabbinate uh, and it was in a, it was a siddhar that if you read it they, they take pains to tell you that this is something for the men in uniform who are going to be in situations where they perhaps cannot attend normal services but they would still like to be inspired by the words and here they can have it it's something that's handy. Now we should mention of course that the idea of sort of condensing and creating booklets for servicemen, Jewish servicemen in particular, was something that was already uh, done by the Chafetz Chaim himself and by people who took the Machne Yisrael, which was the Chafetz Chaim safer for the Jewish soldier who would be found in serving in Russia and other places uh, under foreign powers, uh, sort of a Kitzershochan Oroch that would direct the person, in his activities. And of course, it was published in Europe with a uh, a Yiddish translation on the bottom. I, I don't know if you've ever seen these editions, yet. So the great Chafetz Chaim, who was so prescient about so many things, uh, already understood that Jews would be drafted into war and they would need to have sort of a lot of shasat chak, a lot of situations that were not standard in order to know how to still feel that they were connected to Jewish life. So this sitter that I'm about to read to you from is in the path that had already been carved out, not only by Christian leaders, but by Jewish leaders as well. But this was in English for Americans. And the as I said, the, the one in World War I, which this was based on, didn't have the same sort of flowery introduction. I'm going to read you from the introduction uh, right now. So this is from, it was printed in 1941, seems like it was either right after Pearl Harbor or even before, and there had already been 150,000 copies. So here it is. May this prayer book, small enough in size to be carried in a pocket over the heart, bear the spiritual message of Israel's ancient prayers to the heart of American Jewish soldiers and sailors serving their country. The prayers here gathered together speak of the eternal aspirations of the Jewish people, and indeed of all mankind. They lift the soul above the immediate cares and interests of the daily round to the sphere of tenderness, purity, and faith that is divine. They link those far from home with some of the most beautiful and uplifting associations of family life. They quicken loyalty to loved ones and to all one's fellow men. They strengthen against temptation and give courage to spurn evil and hold fast to faith in the ultimate triumph of the good and furthering the high purpose, this little volume of devotion serves not only the men who use it, but also the highest ideal of America. Now, that introduction was unique to the 1941 edition, and I think it bespeaks the idea of the justice of the cause of the United States. And it and it tries, I think, Yitzchak to to meld uh, Judaism together with being a great American citizen, especially a soldier.
1: I'm reflecting on this. I'm why am I driving? I'm driving up to Lakewood, Machzada, and the father of the chassid, who is a colleague of mine as a prison chaplain, is also a military chaplain in the Israeli army and now he's the American army. And he, he told me he's you know he's going to be deployed next week out to Kuwait to be a chaplain for Hanukkah for the Jewish soldiers who are stationed currently in Kuwait. And so he's discussing, you know, what what he's involved with over there and work there.
0: So, Let me just make a comment from 80 years ago. The implied literacy is already much more than you would expect from the average 20-year-old today. I'm not saying that it's it's, it's Shakespeare or Dickens but you can see the elevated prose of the introduction, you know. And, and, and you're right, maybe the average guy didn't even know what he was looking at. But I think it shows you that we were dealing with a more literate and, and innocent uh, group of soldiers.
1: I mean, that's only part, part of the curiosity of the Sidurium that, you know, came at, the English Sidurium that came out of, whether it's England or America, you know what, when Philip Birnbaum translated his Siddur, you know, he noted how difficult the language was. And, you know, he tried to, you know, in his time, you know, his Siddur was much more readable than the Siddurim, than, you know, whether it was the, uh, the authorized prayer book, okay, or well, other. Okay, well,
0: again, we, we can talk about Yitzchak, the efficacy and the exactitude and the awkwardness of some of the translations. But this, of course, you know, the, the idea that the purpose of prayer is to lift your soul above the cares and interests of the daily round and that that's going to make you a better person and a better soldier as well. Now, one of the things it's like this sitter soft pedals, which I mentioned to you, the 19, edition and the 1958 edition are much more strident about is that this is only meant for this purpose when you're in a situation where you can't have a full service. This sitter, and I'll show you, that, let's read what it says, including only the essence of the principal Jewish services of prayer, it's designed to be used where the exigencies of life in the army or the navy do not permit attendance at a regular synagogue services with their incomparable richness of spiritual inspiration. But it doesn't give you that extra warning, the earlier and later sitter does. But don't think that this means that when you leave, when you come back from the war, that this is going to be your standard sitter. And of course, one of the things that, which I assume was put into the 1958 edition, was due to the Orthodox input that did not want this to follow in the haramim that were issued when the Hamburg Temple and its Siddur uh, was circulated where many sections were excised and were shortened, and of course there was the condemnation of the Chassam Sofer of kiveger, and all the ador, uh in the in, which were which were in the book Eila Divri Abris, which you can also find on Hebrew books. I think because of that they had to write specifically. This is only Bishasat Chag Godel. Let me just read the last paragraph. May this manual of prayer which from the hallowed ideals of the past draws religious inspiration for the present, help towards achieving a future of peace and human brotherhood under the father of all mankind, which of course is the idea behind the fighting in World War II. That is why people from Des Moines, Iowa landed on the shores of Normandy And again, when we think about the the sacrifices of these red-blooded American kids to go overseas, to crush, to fight, to die, it is incredible. It, It was unheard of in human history that so many from so far should travel and be so courageous for a cause that was not in their home, was not in their backyard. And these are the type of phrases that suffused uh, in the radio and talked about, it, of course, on our show, The Projectionist. And it, it really is something that I believe, you know, in Eric's stroll today, as I mentioned in the introduction, you know, they are tapping into, they are realizing that this is a cause of justice. Uh, and of course, it's their life. It's still incredible, the miracle, as it would be, of the American involvement in World War II, because obviously, without that involvement, I we don't know if we would be here yet I I don't. I don't think I would be here but clearly that is something also I just want to mention that this siddur from 1941 was worked on uh, by Solomon Freehoff, who of course was a reform rabbi and quote unquote Posik uh Rabbi Eugene Cohen who I am not so familiar with and Dr. David Issolapool was actually the orthodox of the bunch who ended up writing the 1958 or 59 RCA Siddur, the translation. And uh, he worked on this translation for this abridged Siddur, but he also went on to fame and, and in some people's mind, infamy for that work. If you remember that Siddur Yitzchak, it became standard in so many shuls, and yet it didn't start with Birch HaShachar. It started with the Friday night service, almost with the understanding that even in orthodox shuls, just like in this abridged sitter, the one that I'm looking at, it starts with Friday night. <laughs> in other words, that's probably the only time you're going to start come to Davin is on Shabbos. And, uh, you know, you can see that the morning service for weekdays is pushed later, but in the De Silva Pool siddur of the, of the Rabbinical Council of America, or the of Rabbanim, it didn't even have a regular shachra service. Uh, so, De Solopool, uh was also accused later of adding Christian elements into his Siddur translation.
1: He wrote a very interesting essay comparing the Kaddish to the Lord's Prayer, but he actually did not use that in his translation. You know, I, was, I looked into that, and I was looking at how he translated the Kaddish, and I was curious why he didn't use that very familiar refrain, which would be really a a fair translation of Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's very much a, a, a fair translation of So you, you would think he would have used that because of that, but he actually didn't. So it wasn't really, it was probably less of the King James style than the earlier Sidurian singer, and, or even Birnbaum. And, it, and he had his own very curious things of for example, Kale Adon, which we know is an acrostic of the Aleph base, he his translation had an acrostic of the ABCs, which is a very, very colorful uh, approach of how he had very inventive. So,
0: Yeah, he definitely took liberties. And, you know, I think the RCA was secretly quite embarrassed about the sitter for years until it was replaced, you know, with a sort of an art scroll edition about 15 or 25 years ago. Uh It's interesting, despite the fact that it's meant for reform Jews, it also speaks about themes that are clearly very orthodox. It's interesting, the benching has only the first bracha, Hazonas uh, HaKol, and then, HaEu Avinu Malkeinu, HaMelech HaTov HaMeitav HaKol, HuHitev, HuMeitav, HuYitev, HuYitevonu, HuGmoleinu, HuYiGmoleinu, LaHadChinVecheserRachamim, VYASKEINU VIMOS HaMashiach, L'Chayom HaBov. So there you see a belief in the messiah a belief in the world to come you know and clearly that is something that you know we know that not all reform believes in true messianic period so it's interesting that they they didn't object obviously the main thing was that they had to come together to, with a nusach that i'm sure the this were more from the orthodox uh, just again in in the bracha before kreashma we do have something which you don't necessarily expect the Reform Jew to be saying. <speaking in Hebrew> right? Not all parts of it, including Shatnez, including Basterbachalov, including Khasir. Right? So that that they didn't object to.
1: What's year version are we looking at? The nineteen. I'm, ni- I'm looking at the
0: 1941
1: version. And, the 1958 version, I know, in the back, maybe the 41, also has excerpts of Union Prayer Book. That has a separate section for the Orthodox liturgy and Reform liturgy. And, and probably at that time, the conservative movement was using a more Orthodox liturgy. I,
0: I think I think this Sitter prided itself as a coming together of the three branches. And again, I read to you from what we all know from Tfilos is still in that Sitter. Which is Meyarba the right? To bring us together and bring us bring us to our land, upright to our land, which of course means heretic role. It is, I believe, a uh, it's not a relic, but an indicator of how Achtus among the Jews was formed. We all know um Stephen Wise and many of the reform leaders agitated for uh roosevelt to recognize what was happening to jewry in europe uh, there were marches I mean, similar to the march that's planned in washington uh next week where jewish leaders of all stripes wanted to uh, indicate to the president and to the members of congress the incredible uh humanitarian tragedy that was occurring in europe in many ways you know seeing these sedurim and, and other things really, I think, indicates the type of understanding that gripped world Jewry. We weren't aware of the extent of what was happening, you know, unlike sort of the opposite occurring today where, you know, Hamas's terror was, was within days known by all and the war that followed, um, in its wake. I think, you know, in, in World War II, they knew about the concentration camps. They knew that the Jews were being forced out of their homes, but they didn't realize the mass extermination that was occurring. That was something that really only became obvious in 1944, 1945, with especially when the camps were, were liberated, and we were able to see not only the Nazi films, but of course the actual evidence. But once again, uh, I, I think that this is a period that we can draw on the unity of the American people and the unity, of course, uh, of the American Jews at this time. Although it's sort of off-topic of the unity spirit that, that that's reflected here, I think we should also make mention the sort of uh, literary churning out of material post-World War II. The Jews in Europe who had not yet been able to immigrate to Eretz Israel and were in DP camps, they didn't have their svarim. So there were a number of printing presses set up after World War II. I happen to have a few Svarim from that period, uh, printed in Germany and other places where it was given in the DP camps. Sidurim, Perkeovois, Svarim, Sitter. I, I had a Yavid Sitter for many years, Mishnah Brurus and other Svarim where they were mimeographed, passed out in copies, sometimes paper thin because the paper was by necessity of a, a very rare commodity. In Europe, fell and they were falling apart. But, but those Svarim are also a proof how we are the Amasafer. You had, you had a a nation that was almost obliterated. And yet, one of the first things funds were turned to was to return to those uh, people who had survived the Svarim that they so dearly loved. But again, it's sort of a little bit off topic. But again, it's a, something that's a product of, of that decade of the 40s. Which I think, uh, you know, antiquarians might find quite interesting uh, of not only of the content of of the words, but the rationale behind their printing and what that, what that indicates. Uh, You took, you know, we wanted to be able to uh, use the means of our, of this podcast uh, to be able to share with you some, some audio like we did last week. So one of the things that um, came to mind, and I think you agreed with me, was World War II produced it was generated out of the American movie studios not only uh films for the soldiers prop- and propaganda films for to be consumed at home uh but also cartoons that were uh, meant to be shown not only overseas and at various bases but to the to the American and in this case the Canadian public to promote uh, devotion promote a sense of patriotism and, in this specific cartoon they want to mention, uh, a certain sense of thriftiness and investment. Uh, I'm talking about the 1941 Disney cartoon that was actually paid for by uh, the Canadian government, which was called The Thrifty Pig. This is basically the reworking of the 1933 Academy Award short the three little pigs now as you know the story of the three little pigs the big bad wolf is after them and one of the pigs builds his house from a straw the other builds his house from sticks and of course one pig builds his house from bricks and the wolf is able to huff and puff the first two pigs but the third pig the pig whose house is made from bricks of course The wolf is frustrated who cannot blow the house down. And in the original version, I guess, of the fairy tale of the story, um, the wolf eats the first two pigs, but it's the third pig who, because of his savviness, because of his industriousness, the only way the wolf has able to uh, try to get to the pig is to go through the chimney where the wolf falls into a kettle of hot water and is boiled to death and, I guess, eaten by the pig. That is the original version. Of course, Disney in 1933, in making this short, did not want to have that violent type of ending. So first of all, the first two pigs do not get killed. They actually escape to the third pig. And even the wolf, although is thwarted in his attempts to eat the pigs, he actually just ends up running away like a coward as opposed to being eaten. Now, another difference is, each pig was given a personality. Disney wanted there to be a song to go along with it. So the first pig is called Pfeiffer Pig, who has a fife, which is, of course, uh, a sort of a flute, a hand flute. And the other pig is called Fiddler Pig. And he has, of course, a violin or a fiddle. It was Pfeiffer Pig and Fiddler Pig, who aren't really concerned about the wolf. And they are being lectured to and sort of giving Musur practical Pig. And Practical Pig is the one who's building the House of Bricks. And Disney was very uh, proud of the fact that he gave each one sort of a little different personality. And in fact, all the characters, especially the Big Bad Wolf, voiced by Billy Blancher, were very distinct personalities. And Disney felt, like that this was uh, the proof that he could actually expand uh, a dramatic story. And of course, it was on the heels of this a number of years later that he produces Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And this Academy Award-winning short didn't just play in 1933. Disney kept it in circulation for many, many years. And in 1941, uh, it was used, basically with some of the original footage. The wolf now represented the Nazis. The wolf wears a big swastika on his armband, like a Nazi soldier. And the, the pigs, who don't care, they don't realize the Nazi threat. In other words, the, the, the symbolism is that the Nazi threat can't reach our shores. We need to do something. Well, what is practical pig doing, or uh, the, the prudent pig, or the thrifty pig doing in the Disney cartoon of 1941? He's building his house of bricks, and the cartoon makes clear that the bricks are actually pieces. Each brick is a savings bond. Each brick is a Canadian savings bond. And the point is to save by lending the government money. A savings bond means that you actually pay a certain percentage now, which goes to the United States to use for its use, or in Canada in this case. And then as it matures, you're going to be able to get 20% more when the bond matures. So you give up your money now for the sake of the country. And that is what prudent pig or the practical pig was doing or thrifty pig was doing in the Disney cartoon. What he was doing was building a house that could defend against the Nazis because the money that he was giving would go to the government. And the cartoon plays out pretty much the same way where the pig is trying to get in and he can't. I have to tell you, it's look, there's a couple of scenes that are unsettling and I'm not going to talk about the original one now. Even in the redone version when i saw the little pigs running away and hiding under the bed from the big bad wolf i couldn't help but imagine october 7th again in my mind of the the children that were running away from the wolf at the door um hiding under the bed and and, and being in the locked room it was just you know again the the association i think was 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 immediate to me um but again what disney wanted was the symbolism that unless We invest in our country unless we will be uh, frugal, unless we will spend less and therefore take some of our savings and give it to the government, invest in the government. The government won't be able to man the planes. They won't be able to build with the machinery that's necessary to destroy the Nazis' power, to crush the Nazi war machine. And that was the idea. And again, there's other cartoons of the era which are much more blatant. We have Donald Duck, I think, confronting Hitler. But but this one I thought was interesting to me, because as you pointed out as soon as I said it, the original 1933 version, which inspired this 1941 uh, propaganda you know, anti-Nazi film, actually has parts in it that I think the Stromer would have been very happy with. Uh, and that is of course the fact that uh, in the original film, the wolf when he's frustrated by huffing and puffing to get into Practical's house, he decides to disguise himself as a peddler. So let's see if we can hear some of that original version of the Three Little Pigs the way it was done originally. Here is the scene that, especially after World War II, was excised from the original 1933, and it's very hard to find, but The antiquarian discovers all. Who's there? Okay, that's practical, seeing who's knocking at the door.
2: I'm the fuller brushman. I'm giving a free sample.
0: So what you see here is with a hat, like a little yarmulke, a very full beard, a nose that Durante would have wanted, huge schnazola. And he says, who is it? I'm the fuller brushman and I'm giving a free sample thank you and of course what happens is the free sample is a way to get the door open practical grabs the free sample and he pushes the lock onto the uh, hook the 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 jewish peddler meaning the wolf disguised as the jewish peddler oh <laughs> practical then hits him in the foot uh, and the wolf cries out in pain his Jewish mask askew. He's hit a number of times, and you can see the animators still keep the big nose and all the Jew material on him. He falls to the ground. He looks up with a little mustache. Finally, the brush is thrown at him, conks him on the head, and the wolf throws off the costume. And begins to huff and puff. And of course he can't, he's not able to do that. So here we have Yitzchak. Perhaps there's other proofs of, of a lot of anti Jewish tropes in cartoons, but I think this is the, one of the most egregious ones. I didn't know Yitzchak that the Fuller Brushman was the type of thing that, uh, I don't know if it was a Jewish company or not. Uh, later, of course, Red Skelton made a film about the Fuller Brushman, I think. And then Lucille Ball. I think did a a, a film that was a takeoff on that called The Fuller Brush Woman, I believe.
1: So was it Fuller uh, Brush Woman or Fuller Brush Girl, I don't remember. Brush Girl.
0: Yeah, well, it was definitely Lucy and Red Skelton were involved in this right. and about the the drinks that ensues uh and the traveling salesman. But for you know, in order to sort of fulfill what I said, let's get a listen to the classic song, which is probably an earworm to many people, which is of course the Big Bad Wolf song, which is in the 1941 disney canadian film as well so here it is who's afraid of the big bad wolf and let's talk a little bit about those lyrics as well so this is this is henry hall's recording of the frank churchill song i figured you know what let's hear it not with the little pig voices singing it but let's hear the popular version in 1933 recording from henry hall here we go <laughs>
2: Of the big bad wolf, big bad wolf, big bad wolf. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? <laughs> Long ago there were three pigs, little handsome piggy wigs, for the big bad, very bad, very big wolf. Number one was very gay, and he built his house with hay. With a hey-hey toot, he blew on his flute, and he played around all day. Number two was fond of jigs, and so he built his house with twigs. Hey-diddle-diddle, he played on his fiddle, and danced with lady pigs. Number three said, "Nix on tricks, I will build my house with bricks. He had no chance to sing and dance, cause work and play don't mix. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? Big bad wolf, big bad wolf. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? La, 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 la. The big bad wolf.
0: Okay, so those lyrics are not that well known. Uh, people know, of course, the the refrain: "Who's afraid of the big bad wolf?" Tra la 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 la. But as you can see, um, that those lyrics, of course, make clear the whole uh, story, the way it was put out by Disney storytellers. But for many people, when that the metaphor of the big bad wolf was the depression. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? Was is anybody really? Uh, are we really afraid? of the circumstances around us we need to have spirit uh we can't be afraid but really if in in the story who's afraid the big bad wolf is the stupid song to sing because the big bad wolf can get you in other words the two other pigs really either die either they end up dying or homeless because they weren't afraid And I think eventually the song became a song of warning, a song that we can't just expect that the wolf will not penetrate. We can't, because we do have to take measures. And I think especially the way it was used later, we can't just assume because Tojo and Hitler are across the ocean that this is going to affect us. Yes, the big bad wolf can't shatter our lives. We have to be strong and fight against it. We have to be practical and smart and outsmart it. But we can't just dance around and try say tralala. I think that was, again, if we we take an Yitzhak to our to our present day, there are big dangers, whether it's radical Islam and other forces uh, that have erupted here in the United States. We can't just take the attitude of Pfeiffer and Fiddler and assume that look how far it is. That we have enough security. I think the the story, uh, the way Disney's planted it out, the song itself, um, I think needs to. I think we can serve Yitzhak as as sort of a an indicator of we cannot take evil for granted. It, it will it will rear its head.
1: Well, and then also the one thing I had mentioned about uh, finding Achtu's amidst you know these problems on the side of good uh, you know the allies forces even if we're not almost we get to we get together to fight evil and i saw um, on youtube and by kevaal there was only a small putza was allowed to go visit kevaroal on on her yard site and uh, the chief rabbi of the rabbanud, uh, the ashkenazic chief rabbi rabbi was present, and they had asked him, "How uh, can we keep this achtus going?" And he said, "You know, achtus is an interesting thing because we're looking forward to when all the eschatology is realized, the the, the the gar zev and kevis that the wolf will dwell together with the lamb, and the uh, all these animals that often." attack each other or, or run from each other will live in harmony. And he said that happened already during the Mabul within the teva, during the deluge inside the ark. If there's a deluge outside, if there's a flood outside, it's very easy to try to, to have achdus, to have unity. But the big trick is to find unity when there's not a Mabul outside. You know, Ivara it, says that Right when Haman, when Achashverosh took off his ring to Haman, that did more than all in the VM, We shouldn't need anything like that. We should be able to find Achdus uh, Shalom. Even we can agree to disagree in all kinds of things, you know, without without having to have the fear at the door. Yes,
0: without having it without without having the wolf knocking the door. I, I second your thoughts. I second your idea, Yitzchak. But I think it's important as antiquarians and as musmochim, to point to periods in our history to show we can do it to show that it was done to realize those images of unity and maybe as generations to come we'll take inspiration from the actors that we're seeing develop now as you're right we shouldn't need the flood but it's good that we have the images retained whether in writing or in film or in the memories of those that have gone through it. Okay, guys, that's about it. Yitzchok, I think we authenticated the goods tonight as well. Take care, everybody. Safe drive, Yitzchok. Be well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom.